The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. All right. Good morning, all. It's good to see you. I praise God for you. I'm excited to study God's Word with you. Uh, I'm Pastor Vince. I do most of the Bible teaching around here, if you're new or don't know that, and uh, I have the privilege of doing that now. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 9. We're continuing through our series. It's called Servant King, going verse by verse through the book of Mark. Uh, If you don't have an app or a Bible with you, we will have the verses on the screens. And uh, if you need a Bible, please let us know. We really enjoy giving those away. We've got some here to do that. Amen. As you're turning there and uh, getting yourself situated, wanted to just kind of give, and this is going to be, if, if, if you're new around here, uh, this you know, won't necessarily pertain to you. This is kind of a family announcement, but uh, a couple months back, we had a members meeting, and uh, we, we basically kind of laid out a, a picture of where things stood uh, financially. We took a leap of faith coming to this facility at the end of 2019, uh, and as most of you know, 2020 has been a bit of an interesting year. Uh, you're not going to giggle at that, or we're just going to make it weird, or what are we going to do? 2020 has been a little, little, little different than maybe what we expected. So, uh, but in God's great graciousness to us, we've we've come through 2020 really doing very well. Um, but there is, and, and we explained a, um, about a three thousand dollar a month deficit. And when we talked about that in September, we kind of put that out there, asked for everyone to just pray about what God may have them do, and. Uh, we're really thankful that we get to announce that uh, up until like today, about half of that number has, is accounted for by people saying, hey, either you know, I wasn't giving and I'm going to start, or uh, I can throw in some more uh, and, and help to knock down that budget deficit. So we're really thankful for that. Let's give God praise for half of that number being covered. Amen? That's awesome. Um, but... As we told you we would, we just wanted to update you on that, where we stand. Um, as we discussed before, the, the place where there's room to shave, and there's not much anywhere, but it would be uh, probably salary, and probably particularly c- cutting some off of the part-time salary that I receive. And I explained to all of you then that if that's what ends up happening, we're going to trust for the Lord to provide, and it's okay, and that's what we'll do. Uh, but we're coming up, basically, if if nothing else happens right around the first of the year, we'll, we'll probably need to move in the direction of, of pulling that trigger. So basically, A, we wanted to praise God for what he has done thus far in filling that gap and thank you for your generosity. But B, wanted to give you an update, ask you to continue to pray because uh, I'm, I'm still not sure what the Lord's mind is about it. Uh, I'm not sure what he wants to teach me personally and us as a church going into 2021 uh, and how he's going to handle this. If if that budget gap's going to close and we'll continue on as we have or we'll make adjustments. But in any case, we're going to trust him. He's just been far too faithful thus far for us to be worried about it. Amen? Amen. Okay. Praise the Lord. Um, if you want to, if you have more questions about that, you want to discuss that with us, please feel free to reach out. Um, and if, if you're somebody that's maybe still been praying about what you can or should do about that, uh, you can reach out to us and, and let us know if the Lord talks to you about it, okay? Amen. Uh, Did you find Mark 9? You guys there? I hope so. You had plenty of time. We're in Mark 9, and we're going to look at verse 30 through 37. Uh, I want to let you know we're going to slow down a bit. We've been taking pretty big chunks, you know, roughly running at a pace of about half a chapter a week as we've been moving through this. We're going to pump the brakes today. Uh, both because of the weight of the statement that Jesus is going to make, but also the posture that he takes. Uh, And I'm speaking particularly of verse 35. So uh, we're just going to look at seven verses and work through those together today. And we're going to go a little slower on that um, and really just kind of savor it. Okay, so Mark 9, 30, we're going to go to 37. Here we go. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement. 
and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Praise God for his word. Amen. Okay. Now, what I'm going to just jump right into, I'm going to pull the curtain back a little bit on why I'm, I'm emphasizing not only the statement Jesus made in verse 35, but the posture he took. Because in verse 35, you know, it's these little details, right? It's like several, several weeks back, we talked about the green grass, right? And why, why is that so emphasized in that story of feeding the 5,000? There's little things, man, that if you don't stop and really go slow and pay attention, you'll miss. Verse 35, before, it, before he gives this kind of earth-shattering statement about, you know, if you want to be the greatest, you got to be last, which is, we'll talk about that more, but... It says, sitting down. He sat down. Why did it tell us that? Why is that important? Well, rabbis in that time would almost always sit when they were teaching their disciples an important precept or principle. That was the accepted posture when the master or the rabbi wanted everyone's attention, was going to say something of consequence. And so Jesus sitting here was on purpose, and Mark mentioning that he sat is intentional as well. And so you can pay attention to that as you're reading through the Gospels. If you see Jesus sit down, you better slow down, right? What's he about to say? This is important. Of course, all the words of Jesus are important, but uh, we see even distinctions uh, based on his posture sometimes. So, okay, so what do we got? Verse 30 uh, says, from there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. So this, what we see here is Jesus basically taken off And this is going to be the last leg of his missionary journey before he ends up in Jerusalem and at the cross. Okay, so we're kind of on our last run. Uh, You know, again, we see him talking about not wanting uh, anyone to know about it. And the, the reasons for that could be varied, but at least we know that going from here forward, we're going to see an uptick in Jesus teaching the, the, the 12 more uh, consistently and intentionally, and it, it seems that the, the time maybe for as much public ministry is coming to an end, and he's really trying to prepare these guys for what is about to happen, all right? Uh, verse 31, I'm going to read that to you again. He was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. And so, back, I believe Mark eight thirty one is the last time Jesus pulled the curtain back on this idea. Uh, and it was shocking then. And, and here we just see him. He, he's kind of he's hitting the boys again here with the reality of what is to come. And, and I see I see some of the graciousness, long suffering, and patience of God in the reality that uh, as we're moving through Mark. And this, is, this will not be the last time Jesus hits them with this concept that he's about to be betrayed, he's about to be murdered, and that he's going to rise again. And what that shows, I think, is, you know, if <laughs> uh, I, sometimes I have this attitude with my kids, and I think it's okay, like, like to a point, I can't be a, uh, I can't be mean about it, but if I, if I say something to the kids, I, this phrase has come out of my mouth, any of you parents may, might be able to relate, uh, how many times do I need to tell you this, right? Or if I say something, right, you should, you should respond when? Immediately, later, when you feel like it, whatever, right? And, and, and so, I, but to whatever degree I think as a parent, I should have the ability to speak to my children one time on something and then respond in a favorable manner. Jesus would have far much more right to say something once and expect them to get it. You understand what I'm saying? Like, we're talking about Jesus here, right? So, but I just I see something of the long-suffering, patient gentleness of God in Christ as he is willing to hit them with this principle multiple different times and in multiple different ways so that they can, at different junctures of the journey, so that it can, 
it can sink in because he understands this is a tough one for them to understand. It's tough for them to get. And, and I'm, I'm hoping what I'm doing for my own life and to encourage myself in God's love for me is I'm transposing that reality onto myself because there's probably a bunch of things God has instructed me about or is teaching me or in the way he's molding me where there's probably some repeat application before I quite get it, right? Am I the only one or some of you maybe think the Lord has had to teach you something more than once, possibly, a little bit. Okay, good. There's four humble people with hands in here. I'm not sure what's up with the rest of you, but uh, <clears throat> maybe, maybe we'll wake up in a minute. Amen. Okay, so I, I, I'm encouraged by that. I hope you are too. Uh, verse, verse 32 says, They did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Boy, I bet they were. This was hard for them to hear and to understand we kind of talked about that, but, but we also see that they were afraid to ask him for clarification. Why, and why on this? Because we see lots of other times already as we've moved through Mark where they'd be like, hey, Jesus, what did you mean there? Or what, okay, we just saw this happen. Can you break that down for us? And so that was kind of built into the culture of their relationship. So why here were they afraid to ask what he meant when he laid this bombshell about him dying and rising from the grave? Well, at least some of their hesitation may have been because the last time someone challenged Jesus when he talked like this, right, back in Mark 8, the last time someone challenged him about it, Peter got called Satan and told that his priorities were wrong, okay? So I could see why there's a little trepidation here on the part of the disciples to, you know, go back in with questions on this one uh, because, you know, it didn't go well the last time because uh, it's, you know, also Peter... <laughs> did it in a, in a very Peter way. Um, but anyways, the, the next few re- verses, I think, also reveal a reason that they weren't real excited to hear more about Jesus being betrayed and murdered. I, I think one of them, at least, reason why they, you know, they, pro- they knew this is the second time Jesus said that, so maybe they're embarrassed that they don't get it yet or to ask more questions. The last time Peter challenged the idea that Jesus was going to die... Uh, be killed by these, these men he's talking about that he's going to be handed over to. Uh, the reaction from Jesus, you know, was swift, uh, to say the least. And so, you know, all of those might be reasons for hesitation, but I, there's, there's even more. There's, and it's clear as we work through this context, okay? So let's see, what, what do verses 33 and 34 show us? It says, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? <laughs> it's another thing parents do, huh? Ask questions they already know the answer to. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, man. Instead, instead of just laying into them, he gives them a chance to tell the truth. What do they do? Do they take it? But they kept silent. No, they did not. For on the way, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Here we go again. And this, <laughs> amazingly, this won't even be the last time we're going to see this discussion. Part of why the disciples struggled so much with the idea of Jesus being betrayed and killed was because they were constantly preoccupied with the idea of their rank in the kingdom of God they imagined was coming. And I know for some of you, if, you have, if you've really been tracking with us consistently through Mark, you, you may be tired of, of hearing this kind of backstory that's pushing a lot of the, the narrative here, but it's important for us to understand the, the driving perception of most people, the conception people had of Messiah was someone that was going to come in. So this is what, you know, they've seen all this stuff that Jesus had done, and, and they're, they're, at, you know, they're probably 90% there in believing that this is the Messiah that, that was prophesied in the Old Testament, but their understanding of what Messiah was going to do was to come and to rise up in might and strength with, with military might, kind of organize everybody, and we're going to overthrow all of our enemies, probably primarily in their minds, the, the Roman occupiers of the time, but then, you know, everyone else they had scuffles with around. They, they, their idea of Messiah was very much tied to their national identity as Israel, and that they, the, the glory of that kind of national kingdom was going to be reborn and revitalized, right? And so what, what they're imagining is Jesus is the king of this new sweet setup, right? And, and so what they're arguing about is who is going to be like, you know, a five-star general or a four-star general or, you know, who's going to be the jester or whoever, right, in, in Jesus' court as he's this ruler that they think they're looking for. 
And uh, they're constantly thinking about this. They're, they're, they're always looking forward to this, and it gets them into these deals where they're, they're arguing with one another on, you know, on what basis, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the fact that Peter, James, and John, just a chapter back, had, had been brought up uh, onto the mountain, not even a chapter back, br- brought up onto the mountain with Jesus and, and were able to see him transfigured. And uh, the other disciples didn't know that, but they, they at least knew that those three got to go and they didn't, right? And so maybe, maybe that got them thinking about who, you know, who's number one, two, three, four, you know, what the ranking is here. But they, they keep getting stuck in this... <clears throat> In this argument, they, and, and, and it, it just really reveals another reason why they probably didn't want to hear much more about Jesus dying because that wasn't their plan. They were willing to follow Jesus, right? But they were willing to follow Jesus, at least to some degree, on their terms because they thought it was going to lead to an outcome they were okay with. But when Jesus started talking about an outcome that they hadn't planned for or were okay with, ooh, right? It gets, it gets a little more iffy. <clears throat> I'm sure there's no personal application for any of us in here uh, thinking about that idea. Amen. Okay? So, here's the thing. (laughs) What were you guys talking about? (laughs) Nobody's answering, right? And and at that point, just okay, so imagine Jesus' options. I mean, I think he would have been well within the realm of his authority and in line to just say, okay, boys, stand up. I'd like you all to line up right here. Maybe they'd be thinking, you know, all right, sweet. He's going to rank us. All right. All you guys line up and just walk down and jap slap each one of them in the side of the head. Right? Like that, I think that would have been fair, but that's not what he does. (laughs) Instead, he sat, he sat to teach them. And then he said one of the most inside-out and upside-down statements to ever hit human ears. The idea that he's about to lay out is a shock to the system. It's a paradigm-shifting truth that runs completely against the grain of every natural instinct that we have. Let me read you that statement. I sold it real big, but I, 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 I'm still underselling it. Here's, here's what it is. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, most of us have heard that. Most of us have grappled with the meaning of that, at least to some degree, if you've been a follower of Jesus or around Bible teaching for any amount of time. However, as I've tried to encourage you about many things we've encountered thus far as we've worked through the book of Mark, this well goes deeper than we can possibly imagine. It touches a lot. And I'm going to do my best to show you some of that today, but what I'm hoping when I do that is just to encourage you to to keep diving yourself, keep digging yourself, keep taking the, the weight of this statement and applying it to your own heart and mind and situation, your own sinful tendencies even. Uh, most of us would laugh at how ridiculous it sounds coming out of the mouth of Ricky Bobby and Talladega Nights, but functionally, most of us actually believe the opposite. What did Jesus say? If you want to be the greatest, you're going to need to be a servant of all. Ricky Bobby said, if you ain't first, you're last, right? And that's funny because it's a caricature of a hillbilly and he says ain't and, you know, all that, and he wants to go fast, but uh, you guys, you guys all like, d- did you think that um, I should have been praying when I watched Talladega Nights, or what's that? That was real quiet. I did pray too, but I did see Talladega Nights, so if that's, you know, if that's a mark against me as a pastor, just put it on my tab, I guess, but um, <laughs> uh, movies help us understand the, the stories our culture is telling, so we should watch them with, with gospel eyes, but anyways, that's not the sermon today. Um, yeah, amen, right? That's a good point. That was a good point. Where were the rest of you on that? You missed that. Wasn't even in the notes. Uh, that really, really kind of that sentiment that, that, is, that comes out of uh, Ricky Bobby's mouth there, it, it, it really does characterize, at the very least, the ideology most of us are struggling against. Some of us don't even realize how baptized we are in it. Uh, and we, we need to assess that. Um, 
Here's, here's the reality and how this plays out, okay? We lost many things, many things. When our first parents disobeyed God in the garden and they severed humanity's close relationship to God with their sin, one of the things that we lost, many things, but one of the things we lost was the possibility of being fully content. The possibility of being fully content. I'm, I'm going to make a statement here. It's, it's a big one. You can not like it if you want to. That's okay. I'm, I'm hoping you'll at least grapple with it, though. We will always struggle, this side of eternity, with discontentment. We will always struggle with discontentment until the day we are fully restored to what we were meant for. All, we always will. And if what you're sitting here thinking right now is, oh, well, I'm sure most people struggle with discontentment, but not me. Friend, you're wrong. Because you're, here's how I know you're wrong. Because you're not in eternity with Christ yet. You're not yet restored to what you were made for. And so I'm worried for you, actually, if you find yourself fully contented. And, and that's part of what I want to say. This discontentment, there's a, there's a holy side to it. This is a good thing at one level. Because we should never feel fully satisfied or at home in this temporary abode. That's why throughout the New Testament, we have apostles saying to us, hey, think of yourself as an alien and a stranger, as a sojourner, as a foreigner. You're not where you belong. <laughs> okay? That's real helpful. There should always be in us an ache for the perfect and the eternal country where we truly belong. That's the good side of it. But what I'm saying to you as well, in, in saying that there's a good side to, to a, a, a kind of holy discontentment, I'm not letting us off the hook of the reality that there's, there's an ugly side to discontentment that all of us will have to fight against until the day we actually are in that eternal perfect country for which we were made. Basking in the light of the unveiled face of God, where we belong, right? This is going to be a fight. And because that discontentment is always going to be a part of our fight this side of eternity, we need to know that with discontentment comes an insidious counterpart, and that counterpart is called comparison. They go together. Now, I want to say this. I want to be careful here. <laughs> because what I'm speaking about, what I'm talking to you about, I'm talking about at the deep level of the soul here. I'm talking about how our, our sense of identity and worth is formed. Okay? What I'm not commenting on is, is saying, I'm not saying like competition in sports or industry or, or whatever sphere is all bad. Because... At that level, that can lead to healthy motivation. I don't think there's a problem with that. But when, when this tendency we have for comparison coming out of a discontentment in our hearts, when it's how we try to understand our purpose and value, at like a deep identity sense, it becomes the soil. This comparison becomes the soil which seeds of envy and strife and pride, they're able to grow into thorns which choke out our faith and our joy. Okay? What we cannot do is read this account, these seven verses, and just scoff at the disciples here, arguing about who will be the greatest among them. We have to take a long and humble look at our own tendency for unhealthy, identity-shaping comparison. I want to call out an what maybe probably should be an elephant in the room, Social media has played a complicated role in the escalation of this particular sin, at least in our society, okay? And I said complicated role on purpose. I'll, I'll flesh that out for you. On the one hand, what the technology around the internet, social media, exposure, let's not, I don't want to just pick on social media. This regular media has done this as well. I'll give you an example in a minute, but on one hand, all of that, what technology has done in terms of our access to more people, 
it's had a devastating effect. There are tons of studies out there showing people are less content and less happy, at least partially because of their ability to see everyone else's carefully curated online window into their life. Okay? And many people have noticed this, and they think the answer is for everyone to just be more transparent about the good, but also the bad, to show the messiness of their life online. We like that word, messiness. And let me say, this is not, perhaps this is not a bad idea, but it won't solve the problem alone. The problem is not going to be solved by greater authenticity by all of us online. That's not going to be the fix because at some point, friends, we have to take responsibility for the covetousness and comparing that we let swirl in our own hearts and we have to seek to put it to death. It doesn't matter if everyone else is more real about how difficult their life is or imperfect their life is. Our envying, comparing hearts will still find some way to be dissatisfied. It's got to be, a, I think it should be addressed from both ways, but the one you have the more, most control over is not who everyone in your social network, what, what they do online or what they show online. What you have the most control of is coming before God humbly and asking for help with your heart. Amen. This, this coveting and comparing that we're talking about, it happens in almost infinite ways. It can be about careers, incomes, marriages, parenting, weight, how people look in general, friendships. Almost nothing is off the table for our sinful hearts to compare and be envious about. On the flip side, though, talking about social media having this devastating effect, I think it also has maybe helped reveal just how much of a problem this really is for us. Because if we think about our ancestors 100 years ago, they would have had much smaller groups of people to compare themselves to and to rank themselves amongst, right? If whatever, you know, little town you were maybe a part of, and I'm not, you know, 100 years ago, there were big cities and so, but even then, right, just living in a big city, living in a neighborhood, there's still a limited amount of like face-to-face people you can get to know and, and, and know enough about their life for this comparing thing in us, this, this envy that happens to, to be aggravated and to rank ourselves against, right? You know, you got 20 people on your street, maybe you're looking at everyone else's car and thinking, oh yeah, you know, I'm, you know, middle of the pack when it comes to who's got the nicest car, okay? So who's got a boat, who doesn't have a boat, who's... Who does this job? Who does that job? Who looks like their kids are scruffy? Who doesn't, right? You know, who's feeding their kids, uh, you know, organic green beans for lunch and who's feeding them Lunchables, right? Whatever we're comparing, okay? Um, I know all those are like, those are real dumb examples. Well, they're all kind of dumb examples, right? If we really get down to it uh, and think about it, right? Amen. Um, but what, what the internet now allows us to do if we think about it, it's, it, we can almost always find someone who, in our minds at least, is lower than us or higher than us in whatever we're focused on at that moment, right? The, the internet allows you to go out and continually look. If, if you're feeling down about yourself and that sinful propensity for comparison would cause you to want to find someone doing worse than you so you can feel better about yourself, you can find that on the internet, <laughs> Or if your sinful propensity is, you know, that, that you, uh, you want to kind of dream about what it, what it would be like to be in a better station in whatever, whether it's your career or the house you live in or the car you drive or the marriage you have or the children you have or whatever, you can, you can go find that too, right? And again, I don't want to pick on social media unfairly, okay? It's not, it's not just social media. Regular media has helped us with this. I think the, the, the best and funniest example I can think of is, you know, is, I don't even know if this is still a show. Do they, is MTV Cribs still a thing? Is that still on TV? I mean, you know, you could, I mean, you could have people living an upper middle class, very comfortable life by historical and global standards. I'm talking about, you'd be 1% of all humans in history the way you live, but you can watch MTV Cribs, right? They got 16 bathrooms and a bidet full of crystal for God knows what reason. 
Uh, and, you know, it's, you can feel like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I haven't made it or I need to keep trying to strive to get to that or whatever. Define success that way. Um, I don't know. My point is, media in general, I mean, and, and probably social media in particular, it's given us a larger buffet to choose from as we indulge in this covetousness and comparison, okay? Uh, and, and what I'm asking for us to do today is to acknowledge that none of us are completely immune to this poison of comparison and the discontentment that it breeds. I'm asking you to, if, if you're thinking, I don't, man, I don't know, I, I, don't, I think you... I think you got it wrong, man. I don't think I'm struggling with that. I'm, I'm asking you to shake yourself. I'm asking you to put it before the Lord in humble prayer. Lord, show me maybe where this, this is at work in my life because it's, it's not something that we're going to be able to avoid. It's something we're going to do battle with. We either give into it and we're, we're, we're run around by it and we're, our identities are shaped by it, which is very toxic and unhealthy, or we're going to be at war with it. But... Even if, you know, what, what currently perhaps would, would be on your mind today or, or areas where you'd be struggling with this kind of thought process and, and heart mode, um, if, if, if we were to, if, if all of that by the power of God was just to be crushed today into dust and, and blown away, there's, there's going to be new opportunities for comparison and, and, and coveting, uh, you know, within the next hour, right? Because you're going to go outside and there's more world out here. Um, and there's a counter message, right? If you ain't first, you're last. We're getting hit with that all the time. But, so I'm asking us to let the weight of the reality of our struggle with this to sit on us. However, at the same time, we cannot just melt into a puddle of condemnation and self-loathing. Uh, we need to look for the antidote to this poison, okay? Uh, and so, what is the antidote? Well, the first, I'm going to give you a few things. The first I'm going to give you is, is just simply to believe Jesus. To just believe who he is and what he's said. Here's, here's what's interesting. Though Jesus didn't jap slap them as I said he could have earlier, there's buried in here, is a, there, there's maybe more um, challenge or kind of direct Maybe a verbal jap slap, let's call it that, okay? Because when he says, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all, okay? So really in that, it, it, you could take it as he's just speaking a broad principle about how people should conduct themselves, but in that we need to see <laughs> part, of, part of why I, I feel Jesus would have been justified in, in smacking the guys there is, is because they were sitting in the presence of God in the flesh, okay, of the actual greatest by a margin that can't be measured, right? And, and the, the fact that you're hanging around with Jesus all the time and yet still somehow arguing amongst yourselves about who is the greatest, it's like, hello, none of you, it's him. And, and, and really, we, we see that here. If anyone wants to be first, who is first? It's actually Jesus. He shall be last of all and servant of all. And so in, in telling them in a broad way how to live, he really is, he, he could have been more direct in pointing back to himself. That's what I'm saying. He could have, he could have said, guys, <clears throat> stop talking about who amongst you is the greatest because <laughs> it's me, right? And, and there would have been, that's not prideful, that's not wrong, that's because it's Jesus, and it's true, okay? <laughs> but, he, in a more subtle way, he, he did point them to that truth. He did point them to himself, because he is the first who went the lowest, okay? He is the first, and he does make himself the servant of all. And in doing that, not only did he verbally call us to follow him, but he set an example that we're called to follow. The, the second way we... We have an antidote to this poison of discontentment and, and comparison is to see people like Jesus sees them. Uh, there's, it, it, <clears throat> there's something in here that, that may not be obvious as we, as we first look at it. So uh, 
verse 36, it says, taking a child, he set him before them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. What, what we may not pick up there is, is a message under the message. Jesus clearly uh, has a love for children and puts an emphasis on children. Uh, and, and we're going to see that even more vibrantly in Mark 10. I was very tempted to, to, to kind of rip off sideways here on the importance of when Jesus addresses this idea again. But the fact that he uses a child here, there's, there's a message under the message because children in this time, and, and I mean, to some degree, this may still be true, though less so broadly. Children very much it was an understanding that kids at that time, they were meant to be like seen and not heard. They, they were low on the societal totem pole for sure. They were seen more as property of the parents than like a human being to love to some degree, right? Um, and so there's, there's this idea in Jesus taking this little child. What he's saying is when you receive a little child like this, when you receive someone who most people would perceive as low on the societal totem pole, Okay, so it's broader than just children. He's talking about the, the cast-offs, the rejects, the ones that everyone else would either see as down or would want to try to hold down. And what, what does he say about them? Well, that we should receive them, that we should see them different than that, that they have value, dignity, and worth. And so Jesus embraces this child, and in so doing, in doing that, he calls us to love those who we or others may see as lower in status, okay? And we need to acknowledge that we do still struggle with seeing others as lower in status because we don't have perfect gospel Jesus vision yet, right? We are still struggling with the idea of comparison. We are still struggling with our fickle hearts to try to feel valuable or feel like we're doing okay by looking for others that are doing less okay than us. That will be a tendency we fight until eternity, okay? But... But I want us to fight it, at least. I want us to acknowledge it and make war with it, with the help of God. Okay? The third way, the third antidote to this poison is to understand love from God's perspective. And that's tied closely with this idea that seeing people like Jesus sees them, what is that going to lead us to do? Well, it's going to lead us to love them, which is going to lead us to looking at them different. Okay? And what, and what, what do I mean? Well... In 1 John 3.16, we get the closest thing to a definition for love that can be found in any literature anywhere, okay? And why do I say that? My premise is that God is the creator, that God, uh, several times in the book of 1 John, inspired the writer to say that God is love, okay? So what, is it, what I'm building here is a case for God having the full rights to the definition of love, that if we're going to try to understand what love is, what God's talking about, this agape type love, we got to look to him for the definition. Society has definitions. People got definitions. Scientists, poets, thinkers, philosophers, everybody's got a definition. And, and I don't, I don't want to be disrespectful, but I don't care because I want to know what God means. When God says he is love, when God says I'm called to love, I want to see, when, 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 the, when the greatest commandment is to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as myself, I want to, if that's the greatest commandment, then I should stop and make sure I'm not projecting my idea, my culturally shaped idea of what love is onto that statement and just proceeding as I think would be helpful. I want to stop and really think hard and humble myself before God and ask him to help me understand, Lord, what do you mean when you say love? Because a bunch of what people are confused about right now in this day comes right down to the root of not understanding what love really is. And they throw and bat that word around and try to use it as a hammer to, to forge out realities contrary to the truth of God's word, and it doesn't work. It causes great pain for many. 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love. Okay? We're about to get something very close to a definition from God through his word of what love is. By this we know love, that he, that's Jesus, laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Boom. Okay? So that's the frame 
that I want to take and apply to all the teachings of Jesus around the idea of love. And, and that's the thing, like we sometimes we're like spoiled brats sometimes because we don't understand how privileged we are to stand where we stand in history. That we get to stand where we stand, being able to look into God's perfect word and see the unfolding of all of God's redemptive plan through the Old Testament. Seeing the, the prophesied Messiah be born in Bethlehem, seeing him do the miracles, seeing him prove that he was the Messiah, the long-awaited, seeing that he was murdered by the Romans and that three days later he rose from the grave. That we, we stand where we stand in the historical timeline, in the unfolding of God's redemptive purposes, and that we we have the best shot of anybody throughout time of understanding what God says when he means love because we have the gospel fully. Because we have God's word completely. We need to understand love from God's perspective and then apply it as an antidote to this poison of, of comparison and covetousness. When we understand the love of God shown to us in Christ, then we understand the way out of the prison of comparison. Friends, freedom comes in taking seriously the call to outdo one another in showing honor. Do you know that's something that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write? Have you heard that verse before? That we're supposed to outdo one another in showing honor. So, so some, people's, like some people's conception of how to, how to solve some of these comparison problems and, and the really unhealthy, uh, like toxic behaviors that it brings is just eliminate all competition. Well, that's not what Jesus said. That's not what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say. He said, just change the focus of what you're competing about. Instead of competing to try to Look at, okay, what are, what are all the standards that society decides? Okay, that means you're successful. Okay, now I'm going to start looking around at everybody else and ranking myself against them, feeling either better than or less than others based on my own perception of that. Or we could just go straight to what Paul instructs us in the book of Romans, which is, here, use all that competitive juice to do this. Outdo one another in showing honor. Race to the bottom. Fight people for the right to serve them. Make, you try to serve them so hard, you, you, you work so hard to get low below them that if there's a scuffle at the bottom, that we're digging holes under one another to try to get lower because the greatest already got the lowest. And so you're going to be somewhere in the middle. You ain't the greatest and you ain't going to go any lower than he did. You can't. And so we're going to exist somewhere in that middle plane. But what we are called to in the love of God and in light of the gospel is to strive to see ourselves as a servant of all. Lord, we gotta we got pray these kind of prayers. Lord, change my mind, change my eyes, change my heart. Let me see the beauty of spending this vapor of a life in service to others as a declaration of the power and the truth of your gospel, right? Do you understand how us living this way, instead of this, this other manic way of constantly trying to compare ourselves to everything around us and everyone around us, to live this way, can, can you see, can you conceptualize how that would be a living preaching of the gospel? Because the gospel is about the greatest going the lowest as a servant of all, the king of all, the glorious one leaving his throne in heaven to serve us down here in the dirt. And there's, there's, two, there's two kinds of people hearing what I'm saying. There are those of you who are followers of Jesus hearing this. And, I, and I'm, my prayer is today that this is a, either, it's either a first call or a renewing of a call for you to take seriously this paradigm-shifting statement from Jesus. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. I'm asking you to keep before God this question, Lord, what does that mean and what does it mean for me? How do I live that out in a practical, real way every day? In my home with whoever's there with me, at my job, I'm talking about the hard places to do it. I'm not talking about just opening the door for some stranger that hasn't offended you yet. Oh, look at me, I'm a great servant. No, man, serve the hard people. <laughs> How are you going to serve the ones that have broken your heart? How are you going to get low? How are you going to love them? Are you going to talk yourself out of the requirement to do so? 
So there's believers here in this, and, and, and it goes to you as a call. There are those of you who have not yet come to the place that you're following Jesus. And here, friends, what I want, if that's you, here's what I want you to hear. <laughs> this is a paradigm shifting, this is a, a, a world-shaking shift in the way we conceptualize God, because so many people think of God as somebody that has, has all the power and is going to use that power to force people to do what he wants them to do. That that's the way he accomplishes his will. And instead what we see is a God who takes on human flesh and who comes and who lives with us and eats with us and then dies for us. Who goes low. The highest goes the lowest in order to serve you. In order to open the door for you to trust him. And to believe that he will be a savior to you. And friend, I hope that you can see this picture. The scriptures talk about Christ being the, the expressed image of God, that, that Christ is the best shot we have at understanding the character and nature of the God that made us. And friends, I'm just asking if you have not yet come to the place where you are stirred in your heart with a desire to follow Jesus, I, I just I would ask you, and I'm asking this humbly, but why? <laughs> why? When this is him, when this is who he is, and this is what he's done. What would hold you? What would stop you from trusting him? What else could he do to earn your trust? And I'm just asking that you would, you would contemplate that. And that if you're a person of prayer, that you would bring that before the Lord. And, and my hope is, my great hope is, that you will surrender to this God who not only says he loves you, but did absolutely everything necessary to prove it by coming and living, dying in your place and rising from the grave. The Bible is very clear. None of us, when our first parents sinned, there was a severing between us and God. Perfection and imperfection cannot coexist in the same space. But we were meant for a life-giving connection to God without sin in the way. And what Jesus has done is he's come. And, and because God is holy and righteous, the sin of humanity has to be punished. It has to be dealt with. God cannot just turn a blind eye to it. And instead of pouring his wrath out on us, which is exactly what we deserve, he took the hit. He took the punishment so that justice could be served. And what he's, what he's determined, what he has spoken to us is that Righteousness now is, is only, it's, it comes to us as a gift. It's not something we can, we can go earn. It's something that we can, we can grab a hold of by faith, by trusting in what the Bible actually says, that Jesus is the king who died for us, that he rose from the grave, and that we're invited now to trust him, that we can be made sons and daughters of God. It's by faith. And so the question today is not, friend, are you good enough for God to accept you? The answer is no. That's clear. The question today is, will you trust that Jesus was good enough? Will you trust that his sacrifice in your place is sufficient? Will you believe him? That's really what it comes down to. Will you believe Jesus? And we hope that you will. I hope that you will. Freedom comes when we stop ranking ourselves so we can feel justified in demanding what we see as our rights from others. Contemplating the love of God invariably brings us to an open-eyed look into the heart of the gospel, which leaves no room for our foolish comparisons or our one-upmanship. It just doesn't. <laughs> Instead, what I need to do, friends, and what I'm hoping you'll be open to doing, I need to engage with the reality that the greatest made himself the lowest to serve me. Me. And that leaves me no alternative but to strive with his help to follow that example. An open-eyed look at the life and the claims of Jesus leaves me no option but to seek to go low like he did. Paul said it maybe more eloquently that we should have this mind, the same mind that was in Christ Jesus, right? Who, being God in the flesh, he, he wasn't, wasn't worried about his equality with God. But he went low. Thank you, Lord. 
I need to ask myself, how, how can I possibly compare myself to you and be envious of you if the primary lens with which I look at you is, how can I serve you? How do I end up comparing myself with you? How do I end up envious of you if I actually can take on this mantle that Christ has shown and that he's given us? And, and my primary thought when I think of you is, how can I serve you? It's going to make it pretty hard for me to be comparing myself to you or trying to somehow feel like I'm worth something because I think I'm better at one thing or another than you. My hope today, friends, is that we will acknowledge that this is a tendency, this is a struggle in each of us, but not that us be having an open-eyed look at our, our struggle here, that that doesn't lead us to condemnation, it doesn't lead us to hopelessness, but it leads us where all of our study of the scripture should lead us, to the feet of Jesus, to ask for his help. I can't do this. I can't think right about this, not without his help. And you can't either. But I pray that he does, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for these seven short verses. I thank you for how full they are how overflowing they are with meaning and application for our lives. Lord, please help us. Help us not to do that thing we're so good at doing, which is being acutely aware of how well other people would do to hear these principles. And Lord, may we, may we humbly receive this word from you today. Lord, help us to realize that sometimes these, these tendencies, these, these deep inner workings of our hearts, sometimes they're hidden from our view. Uh, Lord, I, I fully am aware that there could be people within the sound of my voice that have heard all that I've said, the challenge, and, and yet they, they don't think it applies to them. And God, I'm asking you to do that work of revealing, to shine the light of your spirit in their hearts and show all of us where we are not yet fully content in you, where we have not fully found our identity in you. Lord, help us to realize this is not something that's even possible because if it was, we'd be perfect now and we know we're not. We know that a lot, a lot of what leads to disobeying you, a lot of what leads to us causing pain in our own life and the life of people around us, a lot of the sin that, that we're still fighting against, it does come down to how we see ourselves. It comes down to these issues of identity and that leads us into these sins of comparison and and discontentment. And so, Lord, we're asking for you to help us. We want to walk in freedom as living testimonies of the power of God to free us from this foolishness. But also, Lord, as we walk in this freedom, we know we'll be released and, and empowered to participate in serving one another. That we'll be able to follow you and your great example to get low. Lord, we love you, and we say with, with full conviction that we need your help for this. This isn't one we're going to white-knuckle and do ourselves. Please help us. We love you. Thank you for hearing this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.